basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Before we get started on today's episode, I just wanted to take a moment and acknowledge a bit of a milestone that Terranauts has passed. Last episode was our 50th episode here on Terranauts. Now, when I discussed this idea with Mark at SpaceQ almost three years ago, I wasn't really sure how it would turn out. Uh, I hoped it that would it would have some legs, as the saying goes, but I really didn't have an idea of what I would do beyond the first few episodes. And honestly, uh, I would have to say that it took a while to figure out what I and Terranauts wanted to be when we grew up. Uh, I started out just wanting to tell the stories about working in the space program from the perspective of the people who don't actually leave the planet. Along the way, I realized that I wanted to put those stories in context, because without context, the stories may be don't make a lot of sense to people outside the space program, and I definitely wanted to be talking to people outside the space program. So I decided that I needed to find a way to talk about um, the inside story of the space business itself, including the science and the technology, but also the techniques and procedures that have developed for getting to and working in space. In doing that, I realized that it's pretty hard to make sense of the way space works, without telling the history of how we got here and how we have gone there. So, by last season, I decided to make the shift to a more sort of history-oriented podcast, and Terranauts has become my attempt to understand and explain the history of humanity's journey to get ourselves and our inventions off the planet. I'm enjoying the journey, and I hope you are too. It still is hard to believe that I have sat down in front of this microphone 50 times. I want to take a minute to tell every one of you how much I appreciate your continued attention, and particularly those of you who've been here for a while. And although it goes without saying, without your support, I would not be here doing what I love to do. So, thank you. I would also like to take a moment to say thank you to Mark, who publishes the podcast and handles all of the back-end aspects of getting it up and out the door, which I know I would hate to have to do myself. More to the point, though, I want to say thanks to Mark for having the idea in the first place and for always encouraging and supporting my efforts, uh, even on days when uh, he may very well have wondered what exactly I thought I was doing. So thanks, Mark. So, now let's get back to the show. For the last few episodes, we have been talking about the Gemini program, and we have been spending a fair bit of time talking about the nuts and bolts of the program, and the technology that went into Gemini. And I think that was important because Gemini really did represent a watershed in the way NASA did business, and it's easy to overlook. Uh, The short-form histories of the space program tend to go pretty quickly, from John Glenn to Neil Armstrong, with only a passing reference to what went on in between. But what went on in between really was the formative experience of NASA and, and the manned space program in general. In learning more about the Gemini program, I realize now that the lessons um, and scars of that experience were and still are very much a part of NASA 
and human spaceflight culture today. But we have spent a lot of time talking about technology and programs lately, and not a lot of time talking about people. So today, I want to go back to talking about the human dimension of human spaceflight, the humans that would actually leave the planet, and also the humans that would make sure they did, and that they would get home safely. But just to recap our story so far quickly, in the last episode of Terranauts, we celebrated with the Gemini program as it finally got off the ground, literally. You'll recall that the Gemini program had started in January of 1962, with the intent of starting to fly sometime in the spring or early summer of the next year, 1963. As we have seen, though, this initial schedule was um, wildly optimistic, and the first flight of the Gemini program didn't actually launch until the 8th of April, 1964, just about exactly a year after the first flight had originally been planned to be. And, to be fair, the first Gemini flight was really only kind of a partial partial start to Gemini's launch program, since it didn't have any humans on board, and in fact it didn't even have a functional Gemini spacecraft. And, remember, by this time the last Mercury flight had taken a place a whole year earlier, in May of 1963. So, uh, after three successful orbiter fl- orbital flights, NASA's astronauts had kind of been stuck on the ground for almost a year by the time of Gemini 1. They were, of course, anxious to get back to flying, not least because the competition, the Soviet space program, was still moving ahead, and the Soviet cosmonauts were much more experienced space travelers than NASA's astronauts. Having routinely flown missions of up to almost five days, and having twice, by the summer of 1963, had two cosmonauts in orbit at the same time, although in two different capsules. On one of those occasions, the Soviets had actually achieved the notable first, in that one of the cosmonauts was a woman, Valentina Tereshkova, who launched aboard Vostok 6. So, while NASA had begun to feel that the space race was tightening up, in 1963 and 1964 there was no sense that NASA was leading the race or even that they were pulling ahead. As Gene Krantz notes in his autobiography at the start of the Gemini program, NASA had yet to set any firsts in space. But as Gemini started to firm up, NASA was hoping to change all that. As part of that plan, the astronaut program was expanding significantly. The original Mercury 7 astronauts had been joined in September of 1962 by the new 9 astronauts. A number of this second cohort of astronauts would go on to become the core of not only the Gemini program, but also Apollo and even the shuttle program after that. The group, of course, included Neil Armstrong, who would take that one small step to the moon's surface less than seven years later. But the group also included several others who would walk on the moon, and one, Jim Lovell, who would become famous as the commander of the ill-fated Apollo 13 mission. On a sobering note, it would also include two members who would die in the performance of their duties as astronauts. Elliot C. would perish when his T-38 jet trainer crashed, in St. Louis as he was on his way to visit the McDonnell Aircraft Plant as part of the Gemini program, and Ed White would die in a horrendous fire on board Apollo 1 in 1967. Those tragic events would transform NASA and the astronaut corps, but they were still in the future in 1963, when the new class of astronauts was joining the program. But there is no doubt that their presence was part of a significant transformation going on in NASA's approach to putting humans into orbit. 
In part, this was because of the types of humans NASA was now selecting to send to space. The Mercury 7 were chosen almost entirely because of their skill as military test pilots, backed up by their physical attributes, which included being small enough to fit in the Mercury capsule. The new nine, on the other hand, were not only required to be experienced test pilots, they were also required to have significant engineering and science backgrounds. And this trend would continue when the third group of astronauts was selected in October of 1963. The 14, as they were called, would no longer be required to be test pilots, although military jet experience was still a requirement. But crucially, advanced training in science and engineering was made an even higher priority, with the result that a majority of this third group of astronauts actually had a master's degree, and one, Buzz Aldrin, had a Ph.D., the astronaut classes were also getting younger, the minimum age having been reduced from 40 on the Mercury program to 35 for the second class, and 31 for the third class. Also significantly, unlike the Mercury 7 astronauts, candidates for the new astronaut classes did not have to be serving military officers, although the requirement to be an experienced test pilot with time in high-performance jet aircraft virtually guaranteed that they would have been in the military at some point. But it also, by the way, virtually guaranteed that in 1963, they would also all be men. All of these shifts towards the requirement for engineering and science training, admitting civilians to the program, and towards younger candidates, would, in fact, continue as the astronaut corps continued to evolve. They were, I think, a direct response not only to NASA's evolving mission, but also to NASA's evolving understanding of itself and of the organization it wanted to be. When NASA was formed in 1958, it was really in response to the need of the United States to find a response to the Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik. And very rapidly, the centerpiece of that effort became the goal of placing an American in orbit. Uh, the main operational part of NASA in those days was the Space Task Group, and it was created to solve this problem, and the main effort of the STG became Project Mercury. So, for the first few years, NASA had really kind of been a project masquerading as an agency. And since the project was basically about building and testing a spacecraft and a rocket required to launch it into orbit, the STG and NASA were dominated by personalities from the world of high-performance flight testing. Naturally, this also meant that many of the senior and less senior staff came not only from engineering backgrounds, but also from military engineering backgrounds. But even before Project Mercury achieved its goal of getting John Glenn into orbit, that had begun to change, because unlike the Eisenhower administration that created NASA, the Kennedy administration saw great value in a national civilian space program, and not just a government agency designed to keep up with the Soviets. So, by early 1963, NASA had grown far beyond being a military-style flight test engineering organization. By this time, Project Mercury was wrapping up, but the Apollo and Gemini programs were both hitting their strides and employing thousands at NASA itself, and thousands more at the biggest aerospace companies in the country. Now, human spaceflight was still much, very much at the center of NASA's mission. The Space Task Group, which had originally started out occupying a couple of buildings at the facility at Langley in Virginia, had grown into the manned spaceflight center, and it was going to have its own facility in Houston. 
The Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, continued to be the home of rocket development with Werner Braun von Braun's team working on designing the Saturn booster that would eventually become the largest object ever to lift itself off the planet. But in addition to these centers, NASA continues to operate centers across the country, from the Washington, D.C. area, Langley and Goddard, to Ohio, Lewis, and to California at Ames. In addition to its central mission of getting humans to the moon and back, NASA was also expanding its programs to all aspects of space science and space exploration, preparing to and going, literally, where no one had gone before. In short, in a bit more than five years, the agency had grown beyond a collection of engineering research projects with specific technical objectives. It was now home to some of the premier science and technical programs of the whole U.S. federal government. Within the Manned Space Flight Center, things were changing as well as the focus shifted from building and testing the first manned spacecraft to running a human spaceflight program. And thus, the role of the astronaut was changing. Uh, in some ways, the shift was subtle, but it was profound. The role of the original astronauts was defined very much as being basically a test pilot. Astronauts were expected to come into the program once the engineers had completed the design. The astronauts were there to execute the test program, as defined by the engineers. They were almost almost seen as kind of outside evaluators rather than part of the development team. And Mercury had shown the limitation of this approach. The astronauts felt that the Mercury capsule had not been designed really as a vehicle that they would fly as much as it had been designed as a container they would occupy. Astronauts trained for the job of astronaut and were seen as largely interchangeable, being assigned to flights very late in the process mostly, and spending almost no time planning and preparing for their specific missions with the mission control team, at least at the beginning of the Mercury program. For Gemini, all that would change. Astronauts would go from simply being the crew on board to being mission commanders and pilots, being named to missions um, as much as six months in advance and being an integral part of the mission design development, simulation, and test process. More importantly, they'd go from being a test pilot, executing procedures designed elsewhere and handed to them when they effectively showed up for their flight, being test conductors and investigators and participating in the design and development of experiments that they would conduct and even initiating some of them themselves. They would go from being test pilots to being systems engineers with significant roles not only in designing and developing the spacecraft and all of its systems, but also having central roles on testing the spacecraft and, and even approving it for flight. This was typified by Gus Grissom's early and intimate involvement in the design of the Gemini spacecraft. Grissom spent literally months at the plant in St. Louis with the design team. In fact, the other astronauts took to calling the Gemini capsule the Gusmobile. At least partially because of Grissom's involvement, the Gemini spacecraft was very much more of, well, a spacecraft than simply a capsule, the way the Mercury vehicle had been. For one thing, the Gemini spacecraft had windows. Unlike Mercury, where the only way to see outside the capsule was kind of to look down and back and left through the small porthole in the hatch, or to lean into the unwieldy periscope, the Gemini had windows directly in front of both crewmen, acting almost like the windscreens in an aircraft. 
and where the Mercury capsule had only had a few very rudimentary sensors and instruments to assist the astronaut in orienting himself and the capsule in space, the Gemini capsule came equipped with full avionics suite and instruments for monitoring spacecraft attitude and status that would have been pretty familiar to any pilot at the time. Gone was the need to make a mark with the grease pencil on the hatch window so that they could be lined up with particularly stars or planets to align the capsule. Not only that, but the Gemini capsule came equipped with something approaching honest-to-goodness flight controls. In fact, Gus Grissom had been instrumental in designing a multi-axis thrust controller, kind of a joystick arrangement, that allowed the astronauts to effectively fly the spacecraft rather than use the system that Mercury had featured, where the, each set of thrusters could only be fired one at a time, essentially by pressing a button or throwing a switch. All in all, the Gemini capsule was much more of a pilot's machine. There was only one small, uh, pun intended, issue with Grissom's intimate involvement in designing the spacecraft. Um, you see, Grissom, at only five foot seven, was NASA's smallest astronaut, and while he was very much at home in the Gusmobile, it was discovered when the initial design of the spacecraft was rolled out that fully 14 of NASA's 16 astronauts were too big to fit in the capsule. So uh, a little bit of redesign was required. But it was not only the vehicle that the astronauts would fly that had changed. The whole process of getting ready for a flight had undergone a radical transformation. As I said, NASA had realized that it was not in the business of testing spacecraft. It was in the business of flying space missions. And space missions needed a crew that were fully involved in preparing for the mission. Gone were the days when no one knew, until the hangar doors opened on launch day, who would be the astronaut to fly. Now crews were named months in advance. This, in part, was why there were so many astronauts needed, because once a crew, and a backup crew, so four astronauts in total were named to a Gemini flight, they effectively ceased doing anything else and devoted themselves entirely to preparing for the flight. Given that Gemini's flights were spaced as little as two months apart, that might meant that there might be as many as three crews preparing for missions at the same time. Well, but what did the crews do with all of that training time? Well, first they spent a great deal of time learning everything there was to know about the spacecraft and about their mission. They also spent time with the mission planning team, helping to build the mission plan, and understanding how they would spend basically every moment of their time on orbit. Um, they also spent as much as 25 hours a month in NASA's jet training aircraft, keeping their pilot skills current. And in the days of Gemini, they also spent a good deal of their time actually at the plant in St. Louis, watching their spacecraft uh, as it was built. They talked to the design engineers and the technicians who actually assembled the capsule. They participated directly in many of the test activities, and in fact were part of the NASA board that accepted the spacecraft for delivery from the contractor. But most of all, they spent time in a variety of simulators. First, they worked in a generic cockpit simulator, learning the, the basic cockpit layout and reviewing how all of the capsule systems worked. Later, they would spend much more time in the mission simulator, which was an exact replica of their specific spacecraft, and all the Gemini spacecraft were a little bit different. Um, to put it in perspective, the crew of Gemini 3, Gus Grissom and Tom Young, each spent more than 100 hours in these simulators, and their flight only lasted five. In addition to mission simulation, the astronauts spent a significant amount of time 
in an egress simulator, which was basically a huge water tank at Ellington Field in Houston, which housed a mock-up of a Gemini spacecraft, so the astronauts could actually practice getting out of the capsule once it landed in the water. Um, given the unfortunate end of Grissom's first flight, when his capsule had flooded and sunk, leaving him literally swimming for his life, one can imagine that these simulations were an important part of the training. Um, as well as simulating the end of the flight, the astronauts also spent a lot of time simulating the very beginning of the mission. The ascent phase, as it was and still is known, uh, is the first few minutes of the flight from the time the booster ignites until basically the time that the spacecraft is inserted into a stable orbit. This was and is the most critical part of the mission, and it was a time in the mission when success and the lives of the crew um, would depend on split-second decisions and actions taken by mission controllers and astronauts alike. So, there was a special simulator in which the crew practiced ascents, and this was one of the very first moving base simulators, where a mock-up of the capsule was mounted on a platform that could be moved and shaken in any direction or combination of directions, so that the exact sounds and feelings of a Gemini launch could be simulated. Now, such simulators are common these days, and the airline pilot spends more than their fair share of time in them. But in 1963, these simulators were literally the first of their kind. And the intent of the simulators was to give the astronauts a physical experience that was as close as possible to an actual launch and ascent, so their responses to various types of anomalies and failures could literally be conditioned at the level of muscle memory. Then, once the capsule arrived at the Cape, um, the crew also participated in several of the assembly and checkout activities, once again logging more time in the capsule and testing at the Cape than they would spend in it during their mission. This level of preparation was a world away from the days of Project Mercury. In fact, it's probably fair to say that the crew of Gemini 3 spent more time preparing for their mission than all of the Mercury astronauts spent preparing for theirs combined. Truly, the profession of astronaut was coming of age. So too was the profession of Terranaut, well, or as it was known at the time, the profession of being a flight controller. Uh, NASA's new vision of itself had been creating this new professional breed for a while. In fact, once the Mercury spacecraft had gone from being designed to actually flying, and especially once the orbital flights had begun, um, it had become clear that a new breed really was needed. Um, as we discussed in previous episodes, the NASA flight control staff had quickly realized that they needed to grow beyond their roots in high-performance flight testing. It turned out that their main job was not actually running the flight test. Their main job was preparing and planning to run a space mission. And as we noted in the episode on Gene Krantz, the early flight attempts on the Mercury program had convinced the flight control team that they needed to be expert systems engineers with full and complete knowledge of their spacecraft, because they would need to ensure that they could operate it safely and successfully, even when they had very little data with which to understand what was happening. They also realized that they needed to fully explore all of the ways that things could go wrong, so that they were ready and prepared with their own responses that were preconditioned, and so that the right decisions could be made even when seconds mattered. So, when the flight control team was presented with the chance to do it all over again on the Gemini program, they embraced the idea of learning a new spacecraft literally from the ground up as it was being developed. 
And while the program management chafed at the myriad of delays and extensions to the Gemini schedule, the flight control team was actually breathing a bit of a sigh of relief as it gave them more time to learn and prepare. By the time of the first manned Gemini launch, they were ready, but only barely. To understand why, it again is important to realize the level of detail of understanding the flight control team needed to have in order to be comfortable doing their jobs. They had come to realize, through hard-won experience on Mercury, that every space mission was going to be a kind of continuous thought experiment for controllers on the ground. Unlike the crew on board, they would be denied the continuous flow of sensor and sensory data about what was happening. They would need to understand the behavior of their spacecraft from the periodic and fragmentary data that could be downloaded from the spacecraft when it passed over a limited number of ground stations. To do this successfully, they really needed to become intimately familiar with all of the spacecraft systems and to understand where failures and anomalies could originate and how they would show up when they did. Then these failure signatures needed to be accumulated into troubleshooting procedures so that the failures could be rapidly isolated and determinations made about what their real impact would be. Now, not only that, but they also needed to analyze the problems essentially from the other end by not only looking at what would and could go wrong, but also by knowing what actually needed to go right in order for the mission to be successful and in order for the crew to be safe. So they could develop hard and fast rules for deciding very quickly whether or not they had a situation in which it was safe to proceed with various activities during the flight. And these were the so-called flight rules, which started out as a relatively thin binder and eventually grew to (laughs) a much thicker one which effectively became the Bible by which decisions were made in mission control during flights. And once the failure mode's effects analysis and the flight rules had been developed, they needed to be tested by repeated and continuous analysis and simulation. Now, these simulations might be as simple as sort of tabletop exercises amongst individual engineers and engineering teams, exploring kind of one-if scenarios, uh, all the way up to full-up integrated simulations involving not only the flight control team, but the astronauts as well. In fact, for Gemini, the flight control team actually had their very own simulated Gemini capsule built in the middle of their office space. Uh, It was not the high-tech, fully functional mission simulator that the crew trained in. Uh, It was a mock-up made of spare parts and sometimes even cardboard panels. But it allowed the flight controllers to experience the capsule in a way that gave them a way of understanding exactly how various situations would look and feel to the astronauts. And it also gave them a better understanding of what was possible and what was not inside the very constrained space of the Gemini spacecraft. In each of these simulations, the team would confront new and imaginative failure scenarios dreamed up by the simulation supervisor, or SimSoup, and his team. And with each simulation, they refined their procedures, they expanded their flight rules, and they learned what their spacecraft could do. And more importantly, they learned what it could not do. And in addition to moving to a new spacecraft, they were also moving to a new home. As Gemini moved towards its first manned launch, the Manned Space Flight Center moved to completion as well. Now, a major part of the uh, new Manned Space Flight Center was the Mission Control Center, and its Mission Operations Control Rooms, or MOKERS. These control rooms would replace the Mission Operations Center in Florida. 
Uh, Gemini 4 would be the last mission run from the Cape. After that, the launch would be controlled from the Launch Control Center in Florida, but once the rocket left the pad, control would be exercised out of the new Moker. And this was the way that it would be for the next 30 years. The Mokers that were being designed in commission for the Gemini program would see NASA through Gemini, to the surface of the Moon and back on Apollo, and even well into the shuttle program. It would not be until the advent of the International Space Station in the mid-1990s that NASA moved to a new flight control room. Uh, this was the topic of an earlier podcast back in the fall. Uh, go uh, check out A Moment in Time and uh, Just Call Me Robo if you want to know more. One of the great benefits of this new arrangement was, of course, that flight controllers no longer needed to travel to work in the control center. The new Moker was literally a short walk across the Manned Space Flight Center campus, which in turn meant that they could spend a lot more time there planning and simulating missions. So as Gemini passed its first flight milestone, with comparatively little human involvement, having only a small flight control team and no human occupants, the humans in the human spaceflight program were kind of champing at the bit to get back in the game and to get American astronauts back in space. There were still a few things that they needed to get out of the way, some technical issues that needed to be solved, and uh, no fewer than three hurricanes that would interfere with launches. But that's a story for next time, and that's about all the time we have to, for Terranauts today. So, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.